0: Please rise, court is now in session. All rise. All rise.
1: Is It Legal Too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of The Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farrah Fight.
1: Farah, do people who work for The Missouri Bar ever read legal thrillers like John Grisham or Scott Turrell or Michael Conley's books? You bet. Very many? Very often?
2: Quite a few. Yeah. I hear them recommended among lawyers quite often.
1: Or do you watch courtroom dramas on TV?
2: Oh, I, I know that I do. I love a good crime drama.
1: Which brings us to our topic today. Are courtroom dramas really about law and order? or Perry Mason, or are they just bull? We will be hearing from a couple of expert witnesses. Would you like to introduce them?
2: Absolutely. Joining us today, we have Tim Caesar. He's a past president of the Missouri Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and has been practicing law for 35 years. His firm, the Caesar Law Firm, is in Lake Ozark, Missouri. Mary Pat Carl is a partner at Hush Blackwell, and she began her career as an assistant circuit attorney in St. Louis, having prosecuted thousands of cases and tried 87 of those to jury verdict and has a hundred percent conviction rate in homicide cases. So we have a great lineup of lawyers who have prosecuted and defended criminal cases to help demystify the system.
1: Well, let's just start out from the very top have each of our guests talk about maybe the last two or three legal thrillers they've read and enjoyed.
3: As far as legal thrillers, Grisham's always a good read. Uh, but I, I the last I haven't picked up a legal thriller in a few years just because I think I've read most of Grisham's. I got into uh, Lee Child uh, what's it Jack Reacher recently and that it's not quite legal but it's skirts
1: around the legal system. So Very bad to you. Well, I, I've
4: been known that any, any chance I get in front of a television, I'm going to turn on Law & Order. It's, it's still one of my favorites, and you can find it on almost any channel, any day. That's true. You can even lose a day watching Law & Order reruns. It's <laughs> <laughs> true.
1: Especially the marathons that they have of Law & Order. In the United States of America, there are two criminal justice systems,
3: one that exists on television and the other that prosecutes and incarcerates real people. My wife enjoys that show as well. So I, I have my problem with Law and Order from the very first and early shows is, and Mary Pat, I don't know about you, I've never been able to walk down the street with a ham sandwich and a prosecutor and a judge between us and tell the judge, Judge, here are my issues on this oppression that that mean prosecutor filed and have the judge turn to the mean prosecutor and say, what say you? And the mean prosecutor say, well, that's the way it is. And then the judge ruled in my favor as we walked down the sidewalk. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, but right. the,
4: the, abs- the absence of court reporter alone is a little problem there.
1: <laughs> but but it's it is, it is it's an interesting thing that you point out, though. Even in courtroom dramas, and I've covered a number of trials as a reporter, I see the, the both sides in the courtroom strongly advocating for their clients but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't get along and you don't have a collegial relationship outside the courtroom, does it?
3: Not in this. Not usually, especially mm-hmm. in outstate Missouri. So.
1: Is that because same. you live in this, the same town and you have to get along?
3: Well, you're going to see, I, I know it's different in, the, in St. Louis and Kansas City. And Mary Pat, you can speak to that. But it, out here, I've got to see the same prosecutor week in and week out. And uh, it's more difficult to do the, the slash and burn style of practicing law because I have to see that person for the next you know, year or two or three versus I may not see that prosecutor again in six months. And it's very likely that prosecutor forget I exist in six months. So
4: and I would say the same. I, I think for the most part, everybody gets along. And I think that, you know, especially, you know, in the city, a large volume is handled by the public defender's office. So it's the same team, you know, the same people going up against each other every single day. And um, you know everybody respects each other as trial attorneys, and everybody knows they're just doing their job. And one day somebody's going to lose, and the next day the other person's going to lose, and so you, you, you never gloat because your day's probably next.
1: That's true. Is, is there a, is there an ethical relationship, though, an ethical description of what the relationship should be between a judge and the lawyers who appear before him or her outside the courtroom? Outside the courtroom.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I was going to say, I mean, it is a general guideline, you can't talk about cases if the other party isn't present, considered it was called ex parteing a judge. So, you know, certainly in most jurisdictions, you have a friendly relationship. You see the judges at church or you um, run into them at the grocery store and every, you know, but you certainly would never bring up a case or talk about another attorney or anything like that when you're seeing a judge outside a courtroom.
3: That's accurate. And then and the other thing... If it's perceived in the courtroom that I'm too chummy with the prosecutor inside the courtroom, most of my clients are like, what's going on there? Why is he all buddy-buddy? Is he selling me down the river here? So you may be a little more standoffish in court, but outside the courtroom, I don't think anybody, at least I I perceive it to be not as big an issue uh, if you are seen talking to a prosecutor outside the courtroom or the judge. But Mary Pat's right. Unless you've got permission from the other side Uh, you're not supposed to be talking to the judge outside there's there's a funny story to that Uh, back when I first started in the early 80s there was a prosecutor down here who's since passed but he and I had a standing ex parte order Mary Pat where you know you can always talk to the judge I don't care if you can talk him into something without me god bless you You we had we had permission to talk to the judge without getting hold of the other one for about 20 years. So.
2: <laughs> so now that we know that lawyers get along, which is a is a good thing for the public to understand and that we can be civil to one another, one of the other myths that I think that exists is the speed of trials. Um, you know, of course, if you're watching an episode of Law and Order, another weekly crime drama, everything's tied up with a neat little bow at the end of it in that one episode. Um, but can you walk us through... What the normal timeline is in a in a in a normal criminal case.
4: So in the city, generally, if a you know, let's since homicides are the most common example, you um, know, in the legal thriller or a movie, I think that's the easiest one to speak to. Kind of everybody can relate to that one. So if if you had a homicide case, it first it, it may not be solved uh, very quickly. The, you know, there it isn't unusual for a lead to pop up a year or two later, or six months later. It takes the police a long time to work up a case. Then um, from charging, it has to go through so many steps and and an exchange of what's called discovery, where everybody basically the prosecutor shows the defense their file and everything that they have. That entire thing, for all the way through a jury trial, is going to take eighteen months to two years, and that's that's if everything in the case runs on time and stays on track.
3: That's accurate.
4: Now, with the
2: first part of that, you mentioned that sometimes it might be up to a year before lead breaks through, and and the you know, you think you have the case solved to even begin prosecution of of the case. Can we talk about some of the forensic science? I love, like, the forensic files, and I know CSI is a big hit. But, Mary Pat, is that accurate? I mean, can you really see an image and zoom, zoom, enhance, enhance, and it all still be crystal clear so that you could read that license plate from a mile away <laughs> on the video camera? <laughs> or do, does that really work? Do you really have the type of technology like that in, in at, at your avail?
4: Right. So I always say a great illustration of just how out there So show like CSI is, is that there's a annual science fiction award called the Saturn Award. And in um, CSI's first year on television, it actually beat out Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the most <laughs> science fiction in a TV show. So if that gives you the short answer of the amount of things that are wrong in a show like CSI, you know, no, you can't. I, mean, I think most people could kind of relate to this on their own phones. If you start making a photo larger to look at a face of a suspect, it just gets more blurry. The general cameras that are there, the technology isn't there to zoom in and and highlight a face and no, you know, police departments don't have facial recognition software that is going to be able to scan that face and tell you who that is. And um, which is sometimes why it takes a long time, even if, you know, you might see on the news that the police have this photograph and they don't crack the case until two years later. It might take two years to figure out who that is in the photograph you know, that they don't have a name, even if the picture is crystal clear. So um, because there just isn't, thank goodness, a database of all of our photos floating around (laughs) that anybody can walk in and search. So there's I mean, there's one area that the CSI just gets the science wrong. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. So what are some other things that they get
3: wrong? Well, I can tell you that real simply, it's because of course every sheriff's department has all this technology. We see it on TV, therefore it's true. And why, Madam Prosecutor, in this case haven't you brought in all the fingerprints, the blood types and the DNA as I watch on TV like you're supposed to have? So yeah, that's not she's right. The the show itself CSI has changed criminal defense immensely over the last 10 or 15 years. Everybody expects it to be like it is on TV. So
4: Right. Absolutely. I think DNA is probably one of the most difficult areas post-CSI because um, we've come to just sort of expect DNA in everything. And and it's so, you know, we've come to believe it as a science and understand it as a science. And it, it, it makes people so certain where people have gotten to the point that they understand you can't fake DNA and you can't to, you know, two people bleeding on the same spot doesn't become a third DNA, you can actually separate out the two people. But people, because of shows like CSI, have begun to believe that we just drop our DNA wherever we go. And um, there's a number of things that degrade DNA. Um, there's First, there's times that we don't leave it behind. And then even if we do, there's a number of things that degrade it that you can't actually determine it with any scientific certainty. Um, And speaking of CSI, that's one of my bones to pick with CSI is I kind of had to start I sort of scream at the television when they put all those DNA samples that they're collecting in plastic bags because plastic is one of the things that degrades DNA. So you're saying you should always get paper over plastic
0: <laughs> when you're collecting
4: exactly. evidence. All right. Exactly. Boom, boom, boom. environmental
1: concerns <laughs> be gone. Let me ask you then, from the standpoint of picking a jury, uh, from the standpoint of a judge, as well as from the standpoint of one of the attorneys in the courtroom, how how often do you find that you have to educate the jury that what they're going to be doing or what they're going to be sitting through is not what they see on television is, is, does that have an an effect on the jury? Do you have to educate the jury too, while you're picking them?
3: I think, yeah, smart lawyer will. Yes. So.
4: It was a, it would be a huge piece of what I would talk to a jury about and I would vary it depending on the kind of case I had and what I think people would come to expect. You know, if there's a gun, people assume that there's going to be fingerprints on a gun. So it's been a long time talking about that, about different, you know, their different surfaces are more conducive to leaving a fingerprint behind. Interestingly enough, a gun is not one of those surfaces um, because of, you know, you want something flat and in a gun, you know, the grip of the handle tends to be raised. And so we would I would talk about that with the jury about how it was less likely when they would think that it would be more likely if I had a gun that I had fingerprints.
2: Tim, did you have anything to add there about
3: when you talk to a jury? She's right. You've got to educate them. And that's obviously one of the areas you're going to talk to them about. Along with any current events that have happened recently in the criminal world, you're going to be talking to the jury. I, back in the day, the, a very clear example was uh, DeLorean and uh, the cocaine possession. And I happened to actually have a trial like the next week, and we talked extensively about DeLorean and you know how that plays with the population and their expectations.
1: Tim, you referenced the DeLorean case, and lawyers like to refer to cases in the past for precedence, and sometimes the layman like me doesn't know what you're tracking. I assume that you're talking about John DeLorean who made the automobile and ran into some drug troubles in, in, in his case.
3: That's exactly right, yes, sir.
1: DeLorean and the smuggler didn't meet on their own. The government set it up. When I say government, I mean the prosecutors. It was really clear from the testimony to the jury that the government set up two and three different scenarios to draw DeLorean in and they never quite got him in. He really kind of outsmarted them.
3: And another thing, everybody nowadays is wanting everything on TV. So I almost, aired. and Mary Pat, I don't know your experience here, if I've got an expert witness and and I know he may not make as good a presentation in the courtroom, I may do a video deposition with you for testimony and people love watching evidence on TV. It's it's really weird.
4: <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting. Enough, I didn't have that. I did not have that experience. Maybe it's the state's budget. I didn't have much many expert witnesses. But um, I found that um, most jurors wanted live testimony. So that's interesting that the sort of a different jurisdiction might have different expectations.
1: As a prosecutor, how important is it to make sure that that, uh, something such as uh, the Miranda rights issue has been taken care of properly by the police department? Do you even know the Miranda rights?
3: You have the right to remain silent. You have the
0: right to remain silent. You have the right to remain silent.
3: Legalese.
2: Bob, yes. you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do can be used in a court of law against you. That's the Miranda warnings, or at least the beginning of them. And here to tell us more about them and where they came from is former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court, Mike
0: Wolfe. Let me tell you about Miranda. The experts today have been talking about criminal law, about Miranda rights. You've heard of Miranda, of course, because it's been on TV. It's in movie crime shows. But where do Miranda rights come from? They come from a case decided by the United States Supreme Court. Actually, Miranda was the first of four cases that involved the same thing. The decision involved the question, well, what rights does a person have when he's questioned by the police? We know that we have a right not to incriminate ourselves, but when a police put us in custody and ask us questions, what rights do we have? Ernesto Miranda, let's talk about him. That's the guy who was in the case. He was a young guy who had been in trouble off and on since the eighth grade. In 1963, when he was 22 years old, he was arrested for rape and kidnapping. After some hours of questioning, Miranda confessed, signing a confession that said his conviction was voluntary. The police never told him, however, that he had a right to a lawyer or that he had a right to remain silent. At his trial, his lawyer objected to the evidence of his confession because it said it violated his right against self-incrimination. The judge let the jury see the confession and they convicted him. He was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison, and the Arizona Supreme Court upheld his conviction. After that, his lawyers asked the United States Supreme Court to review the case. They said he had been deprived of his constitutional right not to incriminate himself. In a 5 to 4 decision in 1966, the court agreed with him, said that a suspect in custody. And these are the rights that you've heard about on TV when they read the Miranda rights. The right to remain silent. Anything you say will be used against you in court. You gotta be clearly informed that you have the right to consult with a lawyer and to have a lawyer with you during the questioning. And that if you cannot afford a lawyer, a lawyer will be provided to to represent you. After this decision, police departments around the country gave their officers Miranda cards so they could read suspects their rights. So what about Ernesto Miranda himself? What happened to him? Well, when his case came back down to the Arizona courts, he was retried without the confession, of course. But his girlfriend testified against him and he was convicted again and sentenced again to 20 to 30 years in prison. He was paroled in 1972. After his parole, he autographed Miranda cards, which he sold in bars for a buck and a half apiece. He went back to prison for a year for a parole violation in the 1970s. And after he was paroled again, he had trouble staying out of trouble. He got into a fight in a bar in Phoenix in 1976 and he was stabbed to death. So Miranda's is no longer with us, but his name lives on, of course, in Legal Ease.
1: Legal Ease. <laughs> Have you ever run into a problem where it's it's a questionable issue?
4: Oh, sure. Well, I mean, one is sort of the duty, the ethical duty of a prosecutor is if if you think it's an issue, if you're worried about it, then you probably shouldn't be using the statement that came after the Miranda, if you know, if you have a concern, you have an ethical duty to disclose that and um, and not use a statement. If it's a gray area, which is most of the time when you have trouble, is where they're going to fall. You know that gets litigated ahead of time. That that's a separate hearing um, that doesn't happen in front of the jury, and and both sides present why they think either Miranda was read and the person voluntarily gave their statement, or the other side argues. Um, the opposite, and then the judge makes the call, and all that happens long before it gets in front of a jury.
3: And, and and along that line, sometimes the lawyers, Mary Pat, I won't have control over the investigator who's doing taking the statement. So both all of us would think it would be a very simple thing at a minimum to go down to Walmart and get a twenty five dollar cassette tape recorder and push record when we start talking to the prospective witness. Unfortunately, sometimes investigators, officers don't do that, don't videotape. We all have videotaped uh, capability with our phones, but nobody does that. Or not? No, a, a lot of jurisdictions don't provide video or audio taped, uh, basically those segments of the investigation. And it makes it rough for both the prosecutor and the defense lawyer.
1: If I'm picked up for a serious crime, what if I just turn around and talk to the officer who arrested me and admit to everything at that point before he has a chance to give me my Miranda warning? What does what impact does that have on the case?
3: It's, it's going to get you convicted. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yes, it's a voluntary I would agree. statement. Yeah, it's a voluntary statement. Interesting. The officer has a duty to investigate. We call that good police work. If at the point in time he suspects The person he's talking to may be involved. A good officer will stop and say, hey, by the way, you've got these rights, and then proceed with the questioning. But it's not a requirement for law enforcement to simply, when they start talking to you, unless before they start talking to you, they know you're a target of the crime they're investigating. Uh, The bottom line is they can investigate, and then they find out things, and then they go, oh, my. This may be person I need to give the Miranda rights to. Have I said that wrong, Mary Pat?
4: No, I, I would. I would agree, and I think, practically speaking, you're going to find that, you know, you're kind of, we're kind of splitting hairs here, but it's an important thing to note that if, if officer, if you're if an officer is walking up and intends to arrest someone, um, the almost the first thing out of their mouth is Miranda. I mean, for most of them, it's it's a second nature as their name.
2: Well, and I will say, Miranda rights being read is one thing that is uniform across all crime dramas and movies that we see. Um, So it's something that seems to actually, they are getting that right then in in their depiction of the criminal justice system. Um, I wanted to shift gears and talk about expert witnesses. And I know, Tim, you mentioned that sometimes you might have them uh, do a recorded deposition and then show that to the jurors, but how, what, Type of role do expert witnesses play in criminal cases? I know that there's also been a series of true crime documentaries that are, are really popular these days, especially like the Netflix produced one, Making a Murderer. And there's a lot of time spent um, and attention given to the the scientific expert witnesses that appear in those cases.
3: Well, it depends on the issues in the case, but if the issue is something that's going to be outside the normal purview of people. And we need somebody with expertise in that area. You're going to have an expert witness in, assuming your client can afford it, and uh, and that gets back to the economics of life. Um, you know, not everybody has an unlimited budget like they seem to on TV. Um, so,
1: well, that brings up an interesting point. If if the if the witness if the person can afford it, does that. Does that mean there's a certain inequality built into the law because it's it depends so much on the affordability of expert witnesses by, on behalf of the client? Yes, <laughs> that was easy.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean absolutely. Although I do always caution that, though there definitely is is a you know disparity in in who can afford what as far as a criminal defense is that. Um, I always get very defensive. I think some, the public defenders in our state are some of the best trial attorneys out there. And I've seen defendants where they had this, you know, they had an amazing public defender. They had that public defender for free. Um, you know, it was a somebody I knew that was really going to give me a hard time in court. And weeks before a trial, they get nervous about having a public defender and they'd switch to, um, you know, an attorney that somebody in the family got enough money and got together and paid. And there wasn't necessarily anything wrong with that attorney that they hired. But um, I always get a little defensive in these conversations because I think public defenders are great trial attorneys. They're in court every day. They're there because they're passionate about what they do. Um, and they can, they can really do a great job.
3: Agreed wholeheartedly. You can get outstanding trial lawyers uh, in the public defender system. A lot of them are overworked, but they still know how to try a case you can get a private attorney on that doesn't necessarily know his head from his rear end and uh, not do what the public defender was going to do. So
2: one thing that I find interesting about TV shows that feature lawyers is a lot of times the lawyers will be handling a totally different case week to week. And I'm not just talking about like within the criminal arena, but one week they'll be handling like a freedom of speech issue. And the next week it might be a criminal case. And then the next week it might be a divorce. (laughs) So... Talk to us about what, um, how lawyers really practice in real life and, and the practice areas and why that matters.
3: In my case, I started out as a general practitioner for the first, oh, I want to say, 10 years of my practice. And it got to be too difficult without a big staff of clerks and associate lawyers uh, under me to continue to work in all arenas. So I pared it down to a couple and finally. I just made a move to pare it down to criminal defense. uh, And it's been helpful because I can keep up with the law. I'll dabble in the other areas as needed, but I try to stay pretty much strictly in the area that I've come to know. And it's easier to practice law that way, I think. So,
4: I would agree. One of my favorite judges, the retired Judge Michael David on the bench, used to always talk about how you come out of law school and you have a wide variety of knowledge, but it's not very deep. And by the time you... Um, you end up practicing you have a narrow um understanding of the law but it is incredibly deep so i always thought that visual kind of explains what happens over time to most lawyers they just fall you know they eventually end up in an area that uh that they're good at and they've got a lot of experience in and they keep up on the law and you just keep getting those kinds of cases. It's pretty rare for somebody like you described, you know, like on your Allie McBeal or your, I think I'm showing my age with that one, but (laughs) um, where you, you know, you bounce from such very different kinds of cases from, you know, one file to the next.
2: I would also it, reference Allie McBeal, Mary Pat, um, but I think, suits, <laughs> I think suits is the new version of that. So. I,
4: that's fair. That's fair.
1: I'd like to get back to something we talked about just a minute ago, and that's expert witnesses. And from the standpoint of the judge or the prosecutor, for that matter, and the defense attorney, it seems to me that expert witnesses have a narrow knowledge band, and quite often they have their own lingo. What are the challenges to making sure that your expert witnesses – are speaking a language that the jury can understand and how much of a burden is that on you to make sure that their, that their testimony is in fact clear.
4: Well, you sound like somebody who just listened to a DNA analyst testify on the stand. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the first step I always did is I'd have them explain it. And then I would say to me, you know, before a trial, and then I would say, I have no idea what you want, what you just said, which means those other 12 people aren't going to either. Um, And we would just, I would. It was almost like going through and having them translate a language. I mean, you, you are exactly right. There's a there's a vernacular. There's a, there's an understanding, and they get so specialized and they're so good at what they do uh, that they sometimes can can for you know can forget how to communicate that to the outside world, and that's half the battle in a jury
0: trial.
3: That's definitely trial preparation. You, you, if you don't do that before trial, you're not going to get an effective uh, expert witness. Period. So.
2: So speaking of a plain-spoken expert witness, I'm going to reference a a favorite movie of mine, My Cousin Vinny.
1: But does being an ex-mechanic necessarily qualify you as being an expert on tire marks?
2: No. Thank you. Goodbye.
1: Sit down and stay there until you're told to leave.
2: Can you have an expert witness in today's day and age that, you know, is someone that you know that knows a lot about this one subject and have them come and qualify as an expert witness in trial?
3: If you've told the other side, <laughs> <laughs> it probably isn't the wisest thing to do. Um,
4: <laughs> you know, I suppose if the only person out there is, is in, um is it a, that happens to be you know your your best friend, your fiance, or whatever, just also happens to be the only expert out there in your field. But on cross examination, you're going to take the hit on that relationship.
3: Well, maybe, but if you get uh, uh, Mar- Marissa Tormey is your expert witness with the jury in that movie.
2: Nobody could answer that question. Your
3: Honor, I move to disqualify Ms. Vito as an expert witness. Can you answer the question?
4: No. It is a trick question. Call
3: her every time, Mary Pat. So.
4: <laughs> well, that goes to another issue of knowing who to call versus who's <laughs> in sitting in the jury box. And that that's important too.
3: Know your audience is one of the key rules.
1: Does so. the fact that expert witnesses sometimes are paid a rather significant amount of money to testify way for or against them in a trial?
4: You know, having crossed expert witnesses on it and having used it, um, you know, against maybe a defense witness... I don't I really don't think a jury cares. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my own criti- my criticism of myself of having even crossed people on it. I, I think a jury understands for the most part that people need to make a living unless I mean, if it is just an astronomical fee, if it's something out of the realm of ordinary and and strikes a nerve, but for the most part, I think people get that these are professional witnesses in that the reputation matters to them and that, um, you know, they they have to. They have to eat. They have to pay their
3: mortgage. That's exactly right.
4: A, a
2: popular uh, theme in Perry Mason, if I recall, would be that during the great cross-examination, the def- uh, the person accused of the crime would spill the beans. <laughs> 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 so first, can you talk about does, does the person who's being accused even have to testify? And then if they do— is the cross-examination usually
4: that dramatic?
3: <laughs> Mary Pat, have you ever had a, a Perry Mason moment on in the courtroom?
4: You know, in 87 trials, I don't think I had a one. I think, I, I, you know, not a confession. Maybe I got in a really good ding, but not a, not a full confession, <laughs> no.
3: Over all my cases, I think I have, I can't even tell you what it was. I know I have in my memory. Ah, that was a good one, but I think I've done it one time, <laughs> and uh, and we and it was an emotion to suppress. I think, and we actually won that case. So, but no, it, as far as to answer your question, the defendant does not have to testify, and Mary Pat will be the first to tell you that the burden of proof that the state has is probably one of the best swords the defense has. Then the next one is you have to overcome the prejudice that most people are going to have when your client does not testify because obviously if he was innocent, he'd be testifying.
2: And another element that is it's, Always happens right before the commercial break to keep you watching through the commercial (laughs) objection.
5: Your honor, I object. And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's devastating to my case. Our objections really the cliffhangers
2: that they're made out to be on TV shows. And what are the most routine objections for? Kind of like if you could explain just what's their purpose in the trial process?
4: Well, they are every bit as fun to say as they are on TV shows. (laughs) I will say that. One reason to object might be a legal reason. And the most common objection is going to be hearsay. That means that it's an out of court statement being offered not by the person who said it. So for an example, you might a witness might take the stand and said, "Susie told me," and then the opposite person would stand up and say, "Objection!" And that's probably the most common one in the, in, in routine. And every, in, a judge rules, and everybody goes on their business without a commercial break. But um, <laughs> sometimes people just object to break up the flow of a witness.
3: And the, and the third reason, those are two reasons, and the third reason is the one that Mary Fat hates. And I I try to do it when I can get away with it from the judge is. A speaking objection to educate the jury. Well, Your Honor, objection. Apparently Mary Pat's forgotten the law and doesn't understand that, blah, 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 blah. And I'll get into my <laughs> I'll get into my objection, at which point in time I'll do that about three times at most before the judge will say, Approach the bench, Mr. Caesar. You're gonna <laughs> stop being stupid like that and stop telling and pray and stop poisoning this jury with all your arguments as objections. And so
1: do judges very often tell jurors to ignore a testimony that has been given or something that has prompted an objection?
3: Sometimes, but so what?
4: <laughs> I would say, I would say it happens. It happens fairly frequently. Um, sometimes on nothing, and they say, "Please just, you know, jurors disregard the question." And the witness didn't even answer it. But you know, on the larger things, it's like it's like asking the jury to ignore the the cow that has left the barn and is you know feeding on the grass in front of the jury box. <laughs>
1: I think the phrase is, the bell has been rung, the toothpaste is there out of the go. tube, and you can't, there you go. You can't put also it back fair. in. Well, when a trial starts, you have your opening statements. Some, I guess sometimes lawyers defer their opening statement until later in a trial. Tell us how opening statements work and what, what, you, what you try to go for when you have an opening statement in a trial.
4: All right. Well, a prosecutor can't waive an opening statement, mm-hmm. so um, defense can defer it to later in the trial But a prosecutor is required to give an opening statement. And in that opening statement, the prosecutor has to lay out what the elements are and how they're going to prove the elements. That's the basic requirement. Everything beyond there is kind of style and, and art. Um, but you've got to get in what the person's charged with and uh, the very basics of how you're going to prove
3: that charge. Well, and in, from the defense perspective, I, I, when I teach seminars and/or teach young lawyers how to do a trial, the first part we've already referenced is picking the jury. It's called voir dire. But picking a jury, if you're from Arkansas like me, um, is where I tell young lawyers if you haven't given your opening, if you haven't given your closing argument in Vordire, you're losing the trial, or you're losing a very good chance to get the jury onto where you're trying to go. So opening statement, again, it's not supposed to be an argument, but most defense counsel will at least try to slant the case towards where they're going. Rare do you waive that and put it off. I can see I've done it a few times when it was appropriate, but, and most of those are gonna be like bench trials where you don't think the state's got a case and you're wanting not to spoil how lousy their case is maybe. But uh, the bottom line is it's rare to waive an opening statement where you get to stand up in front of the jury and try to convince them that what you just heard from the prosecutor is not really what's going to happen. Keep an open mind.
1: So, so Tim, do do I understand you to say that during the jury selection, the defense gets a chance to kind of preview what his closing statement is going to be. So you wind up getting two bites of the defense apple on this case.
3: Oh, if you don't, I think you're not representing your client zealously. Mary Pat's going to take the other side of that and object. But I think but I think in voir when you're picking a jury, you get to talk about questions just about on any topic within reason of the case. And so you are you, you are given wide latitude and I take full advantage of that and I teach people to take full advantage of that as saying your closing argument as much as you can get away with in voir
2: Have either of you ever had a case where there was last minute evidence that was actually accepted into the case. Yes. But that seems to be another popular theme in crime dramas. And so I was just wondering if that happens often or if it's rare. And um, what is – is it more difficult to get evidence to be admitted into the case after it's begun?
4: Well, and I think this is one of those that it depends on what side you're on. Um, It is extremely difficult for a prosecutor to get last-minute evidence introduced. That's correct, um, because because prosecutors carry the burden, and so that's that's the way it should be. Um, and whereas, you know, I think the law contemplates that the prejudice or the disadvantage to the prosecutor is not as great if the defense is bringing in last minute evidence.
3: And it's rare I, when I when I say yes, it's mostly from witnesses that have told me a new tidbit of information that another and all the other interviews I've done with that witness they've not told me. I have a very specific case in mind. At lunch, I was getting ready to put on a relative of my client to talk about topic A. I'm not even sure what it was. But in the middle of my lunch discussion with her, she finally gave me the issue answer to what was the motive for the young witness to be not telling the truth, potentially, or at least mistaken. And I got a motive out of this witness over the lunch hour, despite the fact that for the last two years, I've been asking everybody, tell me about this, this, and this, and nobody's telling me anything until over the lunch hour, this lady tells me, well, that's why she was doing this. And I said, are you willing to say that under oath to hear in about 10 minutes? Yes. Now, that wasn't, quote, last minute evidence in that the prosecutor knew who this witness was, had an opportunity to take the deposition, did not in that case, and knew what generally that they were going to talk about the case. But I call that last-minute evidence in that I didn't know it until the last minute, and maybe that's because I'm a lousy lawyer. I don't know. But you get things at the last minute. What you don't get and get to put in is last-minute expert witness testimony or, hey, we just found this diary which is saying, your client confess, We might get a continuance on all that so that we can usually the resolution of that is a continuance and potentially a mistrial, depending on the, the level of the evidence.
2: What do you believe is the biggest misconception that the average citizen has about your job, um, Mary Pat, when you were a prosecutor and Tim as a criminal defense lawyer?
4: That's a great question. I think um, I think, you know, to answer that, it's to circle back to the types of evidence they expect a prosecutor to have in a case. I think that they think the budgets are huge, the technology's there. There is this weight in their hearts and in their minds about someone standing there on trial. And so they just have the expectation that they're just going to, that it's going to be so easy because they're going to get a videotape or DNA or fingerprints or a confession or the gun that they're, that, you know. There's a smoking gun, and really most cases come down to eyewitness testimony and and a decision for a juror on whether or not they believe somebody. Uh, Somebody gets on the stand, a prosecutor, through the prosecutor, they tell their story and what they saw, and through the defense attorney, they're challenged on our credibility. And most cases are decided that way. There isn't usually physical evidence.
3: That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to circle back to the CSI effect. I still think that rocks every jury trial there is. And you've got to deal with, if you're the prosecutor, especially. Uh, I, I'm going to soft sell it and play it up during the trial. Well, why? Where's the DNA? Because I know the jury is thinking the same thing. They've watched TV. They've watched CSI, and I think that's still uh, uh fair. The biggest, the biggest uh, effect that modern television has had on our juries.
1: As a reporter, I've covered 22 executions, and quite often the victim's family will come out and talk to reporters afterwards. And more frequently as the years have gone by, they have talked about how long it has taken the justice system to bring about justice in their eyes. So as as a participant, as a prosecutor, as a judge, as a defense attorney, why is it that it takes so long to sometimes to bring some of these cases, whether it's capital case or not, to a conclusion? Why does it take so long to finally get all of that done?
4: Well, one is volume. You know, the the city of St. Louis tries um, more cases than St. Charles, Francis, um, St. Louis County, Jackson County combined. There's... Only so many prosecutors, only so many defense attorneys and only so many courtrooms that's that's one reason that the wheels of justice turn slowly is, is, is simply volume um, and I, I imagine that most counties experience a lack of resources and and, and a lot of cases to work through. Second is as though it's frustrating for victims for things to move slowly. It's important that they go correctly and they go right. The only thing worse, then taking a long time and getting a conviction of someone who's guilty is not getting the conviction at all. So, um, and, you know, Jeopardy attaches, meaning you can't, you don't get a second bite. You can't retry someone. So, you know, there were many a times that we, that something happened at the last minute and I had a victim sitting in my office and I said, I'm sorry, we're delayed for six more weeks. And I know that's horrible, but we get one chance at this. And if we do something wrong in the trial, we, we face a challenge on appeal. I would, you know, and I would say I'd rather give this defense attorney another month with medical records or another, you know, a time to interview this witness for the third time. I would rather do everything slowly and be done for good.
3: That's, those are some of the reasons. I mean, the main reason, and she touched on it, was our system, I think, is built on better 10 guilty go free than one innocent you know, be convicted and and killed. The bottom line is, in a death penalty case, the ultimate is somebody else is going to die besides the victims in the case. The defendant is going to be put to death if we follow the procedures. And I think that's the reason, uh, Chief, that things take so long. As Mary Pat says, we want to make sure things are done according to the law. And in... a a death penalty case, Bob, it's automatic. It's built in that there's going to be an appeal. And then you appeal the case. uh, Something is thrown back to the trial court because it wasn't done right. So you appeal it again. And then maybe you've got an issue as to the competency of the defendant in the, in the next appeal. And after that, maybe there was a, an issue on mitigation evidence that didn't come out. And, and so, you can have, as you are well aware, four or even five trials, and cases can last 20 years.
1: But, do, uh, but but, do defense attorneys stretch this out by only filing appeals on one particular instance or one particular issue, and then losing that, file it on another issue? Why not just file all your issues at once?
3: I think that it's required that they file on all the issues at once. Mm-hmm. Other things are discovered as people—or— Mistakes by lawyers are, are are then alleged.
4: Yeah, and I would say death penalty cases are treated differently for all, all the reasons to mount line than than a standard criminal case. So there's there's extra scrutiny when it comes to a death penalty case because of the the stakes. Um, so they're gonna that's gonna have its 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 own track, and it's gonna it's gonna take a long time. And for that reason, many victims' families actually prefer that prosecutors don't file on the death penalty because of of how long it takes and, and how much that affects their lives.
1: I remember a law professor told me many years ago, there's a difference between a jury finding somebody not guilty and a jury finding somebody innocent. The, the verdict is always not guilty, but that doesn't necessarily mean somebody's innocent, does it? Oh yeah, she's heard that. I've heard that. So yes. uh,
4: yeah, I've, I've heard that more times than I, than I cared to. Um, from juries. I, I spent a lot of time in the special victims unit, and that was a very common response from a jury in a special victim case. And those are cases that involve um, sex offenses and children and, um, or, or sex offenses and adults or child abuse. And in child sexual cases, it was not that uncommon for jurors to approach me afterwards and say, well, I believed that he, you know, after, this is after I'm not guilty, I believe that he did it but I just couldn't find him guilty on the word of a kid, which is a very different verdict than a not guilty.
1: Can I ask you about closing arguments because television shows seem to think that the closing arguments are really dramatic and really important. The law says he must be held accountable for his actions. Uphold the law.
0: There isn't an excuse for everything.
1: When you get ready to do a closing argument, what is it you're looking at? What are you, what do you watch for in the jury as you're speaking to them? And what is it, uh, is, there, is there a particularly dramatic presentation that you try to make? Because television well, certainly um, does.
4: Yeah, I would say closing arguments might be, on TV or movies, might be the most accurate portrayals of trials. I think that um, closing arguments really are that dramatic, that fun.
0: I am confident that you gentlemen will review without Passion, the evidence that you have heard come to a decision and restore this man to his family.
4: As far as like what, what I'm looking for, I think most people have made up their mind. Or at least there is a camp of you know guilty, a camp of not guilty, and some people in the middle that are leaning or something. And one of the things I always tried to do in a closing argument was I tried to give my guilty jurors arguments to give other people. That, if that makes sense so um, I, I just I always pictured myself arming the people that were already in my favor with things to say back there to help that's in exa- my direction
3: that, that's exactly right I always those are the things you do they're not necessarily overly dramatic but they are dramatic more so than mm-hmm. a lot of other points in the trial and I'm always looking for that person who's nodding with me. You know, it's like once you find one or two people that are nodding with the arguments, then at least you can okay. There's some hope. There's some hope. You know, so
1: a defense attorney only needs one person, right? That's right. So and she- that gets a hung, that gets a hung jury,
3: and you may get to try the case over, or you more likely get to go work the case out with the prosecutor, because neither one of you want to do that again. So.
2: And who gets the last word? Is it the
4: prosecutor or the criminal defense? In the first half, the prosecutor, they have the same amount of time, but the prosecutor gets to split the time in two. So if it's 30, if it's 30 minute closing, a prosecutor has to go um, 16 and 14, basically. Um, and the first half is usually pretty boring because you don't want to give the defense anything to argue to, you know, to be able to argue back to your argument. So 16 boring minutes and 14 fiery minutes.
1: There you go. If there's an appeal, uh, regardless of who appeals. But if there's an appeal, as an attorney, do you take that personally and think, I must not have done this well enough? Well, the state
3: doesn't get to appeal yeah. a not guilty verdict. Yeah. And if they get a guilty verdict, their job then goes to, okay, how do I keep this verdict around without losing it on appeal? So, and I forgot your question, Bob. <laughs> well, but, 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 do,
4: no, you, it's not personal.
3: Yeah. Okay, that was, yeah.
1: yeah. Do you examine what you did? That might that you might have done wrong or think you could have done better, that would have kept that appeal from happening
3: every single time I don't know about you, Mary Pat. <laughs>
4: I mean, I I, want to assume that every case I ever tried was going to get appealed. So, you know, there are cases that you finish that you worry about more than others. You know, there was a close call ruling for the judge. Did the, you know, I asked for it. Did I push too hard? Did the judge make the right call? How's the court of appeals going to look at that call? I always say that, you know, sometimes when you're trying a case, you can feel like you're losing all along the way. You're losing every motion. You're losing every objection, You think there's no way I'm going to win this because I have just been beaten at every turn on this case. And then you win and you think, well, this is the best win ever because there is absolutely nothing here to appeal. I lost everything but the verdict.
3: Well, and and those are the cases wherein the judge is doing that on purpose because, in my opinion, they see that, one, you know, the state has a strong case. We're going to give the defense. And this does happen in the death penalty cases, too. Uh, The state has a strong case or. I don't want to give the Court of Appeals a reason to send this back so defense all your objections are sustained. Let's just tell you that up front. I mean I mean oh yeah sustained And so the state's gonna have to do everything you tell them to do hoop-wise. And so I think Mary Pat, that's a lot of the times the judges just making sure it doesn't come back on an appeal so
4: sometimes although I've, I've, I've had that I've had I've had a judge say exactly that um, you know where I said afterwards, you know, all said and done. Can I have some feedback? Because I really felt like, <laughs> like I had done something. And and the judges replied just that. Well, I think this was a great case for you. I think you had great facts. And I just wanted to make sure. And, I, and, and my pushback on that to judges has always been, well, they can't appeal if I lose. So, um, you know, sometimes judges may be trying to keep it even, but they may actually accidentally push a jury into a not guilty when the, when the facts are there. Not if the person, if the prosecutor doesn't have the evidence, that's a different story. But, but if the facts are there, um, sometimes that, that attempt to uh, make sure the conviction sticks ends up not getting a conviction at all.
1: Yep, that's true. Well, we want, we want to thank the two of you for being with us because this certainly has shed a lot of light that people otherwise don't normally get about the process of trials and so on. But uh, before we go, what would be your favorite movie or television show? Prefer- Let's start out with movies. What's your favorite movie uh, that involves courts and juries?
4: Well, it, it, I'm going to answer honestly, even though it is incredibly embarrassing, but it's so much fun. And that's Legally Blonde.
0: You, however, had time to hide the gun, didn't you, Chutney? After you shot your father, I didn't mean to shoot
1: him. I thought it was you walking through the door. Order, order, order. Oh.
3: <laughs>
2: I love it. I was hoping we would hear that today.
3: <laughs> That's actually a good one. I can't argue with that one. The perfect and, <laughs> and my cousin Vinny is always out there. But I, the one I like that I had, to, I didn't necessarily like it the first time I saw it, but I liked it a lot since then. Is the verdict with Paul Newman. All I want on this trial was a fair shake. Okay, push me into court five days early. I lose my star witness, and I can't get a continuance, and I don't care. It was a medical uh, malpractice case, and uh, it was a really interesting uh, movie as far as how it per- how how you perceive the system. And it wasn't that far off of what I considered to be accurate at the time.
1: So I'd like to add that I think my favorite one is Twelve Angry Men because that gets you in the jury room with people, and well, it's not particularly typical i think it sometimes gets into how hard it is to reach a to reach a verdict in a case sometimes on the point of that knife
0: a man's life is at stake and George C. Scott, she's not saying So you
1: know. We want to thank our guests on the program today, Tim Caesar and Mary Pat Carl. It's been an interesting and enlightening look at how our criminal justice system is handled through the court system. There are some resources that you might want to check on, if whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions.
2: That's right, Bob, at org. Again, that's org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law, and that's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family and your finances.
1: Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights. We've asked the Missouri Bar's Tony Simons to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it.
5: I will admit to being fascinated by programs that compare reality with Hollywood's version of the real world. The only negative is that some people come away with a resulting sense of disappointment in a reality that is more complex and less sexy than what we see on our screens. Even though reality does not feature cross-examinations that produce hysterical confessions on the witness stand, nor investigations that are successfully concluded in an hour, that should not take away from an appreciation of how paradigm-shifting our constitutional system is. This is especially true in the way our Bill of Rights imposes limitations on how our criminal justice system operates. I like to imagine what leaders of other nations must have said when they learned of the protections in our Bill of Rights. The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. I'm sure leaders of other countries were saying with wonder, unreasonable searches and seizures? Unreasonable searches and seizures? What in the world is that? If the government performs a search or seizure, then it is, by its very nature, reasonable. If the government wants to do it, it cannot be unreasonable. And the people who wrote the Bill of Rights said, no, in America, things will be different. The Fifth Amendment prohibits government from forcing individuals to incriminate themselves. Again, I can just picture leaders from other countries saying with exasperation the best way to get a confession from someone is to torture them until they provide that confession. And the people who wrote the Bill of Rights said, no, in America, things will be different. The Sixth Amendment calls for those who face criminal prosecution to have the assistance of an attorney. Yet again, I'll bet leaders from other countries said with disgust, wait a minute, you are trying to convict someone for committing a crime, but you inject an attorney into the process, someone who will interfere with a successful prosecution. And the people who wrote the Bill of Rights said, that's right. In America, things will be different. Is the real world as riveting and breathtaking as the world we're shown in television and movies? No, but don't allow that to dampen your appreciation for what an incredible and enlightened criminal justice system we have in the real world. What we were given by the framers of the Constitution and what we continue to possess today is truly revolutionary. To lose sight of that reality would be a mistake we would make at our own peril. Just because it doesn't feature car chases and a soundtrack does not mean that the real world is any less urgent, any less dramatic, or any less meaningful.
0: Nothing further, Your Honor.
1: You've been listening to Is It Legal Too, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
2: And I'm Farrah Fight.
1: Thanks for being with us.